The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's passage is from Exodus 32, 7 through 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them in the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Emily. Well, happy uh, Father's Day to you if you are a father. Um, And if that is, um, I know this day for many of you brings desire for rest um, as well as uh, amongst other things. And uh, I know it's a a beautiful day to be able to meet outside and uh, for um, me as a father, it's been um, such a rich joy and also a reminder of my needs. <laughs> um, and I know there are a lot of us here that, that are longing for that as well. Uh, Father's Day, Mother's Day, these days bring um, both joy as well as um, some memories that are difficult uh, or longings that we work through. And uh, know that we... Uh, me as your pastor and we as a staff not only hold you with that, but especially the Lord does. You know, we just read a passage um, because we've been going through the life and law of Moses. And uh, we're soon to move from the life of Moses into the law of Moses, which would be great. But this is a pretty uh, stark passage of the relationship of Israel to God. Um, I was just this last week with my uh, brothers-in-law and uh, it's always fun for the three of us to get together. My wife is in the middle of three and they're all married and so the three of us uh, guys hang out and uh, enjoy that and it's a lot of fun. Well, we're watching the uh, Rangers play. I'm from Texas and um, I used to, I grew up a huge Rangers fan, which, you know, there's not a whole, we called them the strangers a lot because they didn't really win a whole lot of things. But uh, but it's fun to watch them. And, and it brought back these memories because now they have this new stadium. And I thought, oh man, the old stadium's gone. And there's a brick at that stadium that holds a memory for me. Uh, in high school, I dated a girl for about mm, two years or so. 
And, uh, you know, when I look back on that, it was one of those relationships in high school where, you know, I spent so much time with this person. It had great moments and not so great moments and, and things where I look back and I think, God. and I remember talking to my friends after that and even my brothers-in-law, they were making fun of me and ribbing me about this. But, but just thinking like how much time I spent with this person and how much I missed out on some things. And I remember talking to my friends after uh, I broke up with this person, this girl, and, uh, and, and going, why didn't y'all tell me like how I was acting or when I was like absent? Or, and they're like, well, I don't know. We just didn't. And I was like, man, I wish you would have told me how I was changing, like how this relationship was making me different, how it was making me not great in these parts. I wish you would like call that out on me. Well, her parents, um, seeing this relationship, I guess, way early on, when the first Ranger Stadium was built, uh, in the first year of our dating, they got a brick for her and a brick for me right next to each other. So this relationship goes down in history. Uh, <laughs> so every time I think of the Rangers, I think of the train wreck of that. Oh, I'm sure they look back and go, God, why did we spend money on a brick right next to this X relationship? But it is, it, and, and you read this passage, this is a brick in a train wreck of what's going on, it was considered actually one of the first major catastrophic sins in the relationship between Israel and God. And here's what it was. You can read it and there's a lot of discussion about it, whether, okay, these idols, what do they want to make? Actually, what they were doing in this relationship with God was trying to make God what they wanted him to be. It wasn't so much that they just wanted to make new gods. It's they said, we want, we want to take the God who brought us out. And Aaron, the priest himself jumps in on this. And we want, to, we want something to make. And we want to fashion him in a way that makes us feel like we're a part. Like we know what's going on. We cause him, we change him to make him what we want to be in the relationship. And God doesn't want any part of that. In fact, some commentators hearken this event in Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Exodus is the second book. Genesis is the first book. Some hearken this event all the way back to the Garden of Eden in terms of the rift, in terms of the brick of this massive train wreck of relationship of where Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. This is the big brick of God's people turning away from him and it's because they wanted him to be what they wanted him to be. Isn't that what we typically want? We wish we could take God and, and, and think about this. I mean, let's think in their minds for a minute. This is a group of slaves that at this point, and we can look on this side of it and go, God, I can't believe they did that. I mean, didn't they just see the Red Sea? Well, okay. This is a group of people who just were a group of slaves who never had for four centuries, never had the Ten Commandments, all they saw were images of other gods. It propelled their heart. And for them to come out, this is a, not an unusual thing for them to do. They want to see, but it's what? They want to take God and fashion him into what they want him to be. How much do we often find ourselves doing that? God, you're, you're kind of taking too long on this. I think I'm going to make my own way. 
God, I, I don't really like how you act in this. I don't like reading this part of the Bible and hearing about you. I think I'm gonna twit, only just focus on these parts of your character. That's like when I was in college and I remember going up to the breakfast buffet and they were out of eggs. And I was kind of, oh, I'll, I'll have some eggs with my tray there sitting. And all of a sudden she goes, oh, hold on. She walks back, she comes out with a bag that's yellow. The bag wasn't yellow, that was the eggs inside. She cuts open the bags and slides in this mass into the tub where it forms and fits into it. I just picked up my tray and said, thanks, I'll, I'll get some else. But that's how we can treat God's character. We can read a passage like this and we can see and, and judge maybe the Israelites, but we ourselves do the same thing. We find things that we may not, may or may not like about God. And we pick up our tray and maybe move to the things that are more appealing so that we can fashion him into what we want. So we're gonna look at two parts of this passage to help us understand this. One is how we make him what we want. And the second is how he wants us to know him. So how we make him what we want. And then second, how God wants us to know him. You know, this all begins in verse one, chapter 32. They've been in the wilderness. They've been waiting for over a month. So imagine waiting for over a month. Moses is gone. They're going, okay, the guy who led us out, who was literally the voice of God to us, is gone. Maybe something happened to him. He delayed to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who should go before us. Because Moses seems to be gone, right? But that's not where it begins. It begins with their timing. It begins with the fact that they begin to wonder, where's the leader? Up, let's make gods who can go before us. In those moments when our faith is really tested by efficiency or timing, what do we do? We downshift into sight. Our hearts as John Calvin said, uh, a, a theologian, ancient theologian, he said our hearts are what are called idol factories. In other words, they produce things for us to look at and hone in on and latch to. That we downshift from faith into sight because it's easier. Isn't it? I mean, don't we look for things around us that help us, motivate us, keep us going? Because sight often goes over our faith. It's hard to wait for us to say, God, what, where are you? What are you doing? It does put us in a position, especially as a people who worship efficiency in our culture, to downshift into sight because we can see things. We can see progress. We can move ahead. We can, we can, we can kind of take care of what we need and maybe we can have God. He's always there. He'll be with us. What we're doing is we're actually eroding our faith. We're eroding what it means to trust him. Now, now think about this in the wilderness. These are a group of people who've been brought out. They're waiting for Moses. What do you have in the wilderness and what do you not have? Well, what do you not have is you don't have maps. You don't have a road. You don't have the internet. It's not like they can pull up any sort of phone and say, oh, here's, there's the blue dot. There's where we are. We're just below Sinai. You know, they can't do that kind of thing. Thank you, Bing. I think I'm funny, but you know. But really, in reality though, seriously, I mean, they don't have, we, we get all used to these kind of things, knowing exactly where we are, exactly where we wanna go, and I have no idea. 
All they've heard is from Moses through Aaron to them. This is where they're supposed to park and they've parked there for 40 days and they're waiting. I remember when in December when the Nashville bombing happened downtown, it took out, I'm sure it did to you, our phones were useless. And all of the sudden, catapulted back, we were lost, we were actually trying to find a certain place. We were catapulted back years and years, pre-phone, which most of us are like, what is that? We pulled into a post office and I, and I was like, hey, do you know where such and such is? And we were so lost, we were lost for an hour, hour and a half. Even the post office didn't know where we were. Their stuff was down. Imagine that. They didn't even have a, they didn't have something to pull into. They didn't have a post office. They didn't have a landmark. They didn't have, all they had was, where is Moses gone? Where do we go next? Who's going to lead us? That tension. You know that tension in your faith. That tension of, is God really who he says he is? For, for a culture, and I mentioned this a second ago, that really worships efficiency and, 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 and timing and where we are. You know, it's interesting. I even reading the Harvard Business Review at one point said that our obsession with efficiency has actually eroded and is destroying our resilience. Now, they put it in a different way. But even in business culture, that, that our idea with efficiency to get things done, have them do things, you know, and we've been faced with that over the last year and a half, two years but that our resilience feels down, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel down? They're looking for someone to lead them and that's where we begin to take God and say, we'll take parts of you, God, that are really good for us right now and maybe some other parts of this world that help shape kind of what I need at the moment to settle this tension in me so that instead of really having to trust you, I can kind of grasp onto things because it's so hard to get our minds around it. We want to put our minds around God. But we can't. And so it's the, the very next thing, Aaron himself, who you would think would say, no, 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 no. But Aaron himself jumps in in verse two. The pastor and he said, take off your rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And apparently Aaron had some sort of craftsmanship and he asked for the gold, which was plundered by God to the people to take it out of Egypt and brings their resources together. And what happens? When we feel that tension, when they feel that tension, they begin to craft something. They begin to put something together. Because why? We are embodied people that long for an embodied thing to look to. They want something embodied. So to settle the tension, to work with what they have, to, to all the parts where they're like, oh, yeah, Moses is gone. We're gonna create something like that. We're gonna create something for us to worship. Andy Crouch, who's an author, a writer, thinker, theologian, a great writer, wrote a small, very short article on idolatry and he called it Promises, Promises. And one of the things he said in there, he said this, every idol is an attempt to gain an edge on the world to have leverage over chaos. Let me read that again. Every idol is an attempt to gain an edge on the world and to have leverage over chaos. 
Think about where Israel is at the foot of this mountain in the wilderness, nothing in front of them. Where is Moses and what do they want? They want an edge on what they've been told was promised to them and to settle the chaos that they're now feeling. Is that not a perfect description? Such an apt description where we spend time getting an edge. Where is that place? We spend time getting an edge on this world and to leverage the chaos in our lives. Where do we take God and begin to craft his parts into his character, what we want from him, into maybe our desire for a spouse? Our desire for our work, because especially when we work, right, we can produce what we want. Whatever we put into our work gives us back something, and usually it's something positive to the amount we give into, right? Maybe we craft God into our well-being. We put everything in, into our emotional, physical stability. And if God is into that, then he's, this is who he is. But God doesn't want us to give him help to be who he is. The golden calf is them putting their efforts into leveraging the chaos that is within them. Trusting God that does, is he who he says he is, not who we need him to be or want him to be. Is he better? And we, and we do this all the time. We put Christian-ish things onto things in this world, the images that surround us in our wilderness to settle the chaos and tension we feel instead of directly looking at this is the God who has just a little over a month before brought them out of four centuries of slavery through the walls of a sea casting it up on either side walking on dry land and yet this is where their hearts go for the, all the times we said, God, if you just showed yourself here, if you just showed me you can do this, I'll believe you. Wouldn't you think it would be the same? But their hearts want him to be what they think. And they eventually do what? They give their worship. They not only give their resources, their gold, the things that God plundered for them, but they turn aside and they say, and Aaron him says, this is your, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron built this before them. And they gave their life to it, their worship to it. They began having festivals to this. And what happens? They begin to shape and become like it. There's a psalm, Psalm 115, that describes what happens when we craft. And it's very interesting. Just a couple of verses from it, listen. It says in one, Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, but do not, and the eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but, but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You see, what God is about is not making us like something here. God is about us being made more like him. Why does he grow so angry? Not because he's, not because he's, he's intimidated, but because his love is so deep. 
He wants them to become what they need to become. Like my dear friend, Ronnie Mitchell, who's a pastor in East Nashville, says, we're not just human beings, we're human becomings. What are we becoming? Are we becoming, are we finding that we're becoming more like the images that we really put our leverage into? Are we finding that our faith is drawing us into the God who really has crafted us and knows us? How does God really want us to see him? It's incredible, this passage, and I never, it is one of those passages I've read a lot, even when I was young and, um, and, and was reading the Bible, it's always just dumbfounded me about how Moses approaches God after God expresses his anger. God expresses, it turned aside, these stiff-necked people, verse nine, I have seen this people and behold, they are stiff-necked and now therefore let me alone. He's basically saying, leave me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? You know what's amazing about this to me is that God lets Moses mediate in this way. We're actually seeing what was Moses' role as the mediator between God and the people. Now, does this put Moses on par with God? No, it doesn't put him on par with him. It doesn't, it doesn't put him in a position of, of super authority or power. But what Moses does, and you notice, he doesn't appeal that the people sin. It's not that big a deal. It's okay. We're gonna take care of it. He doesn't appeal for anything else about them. He appeals solely on the character of God himself. And this is what the mediator does. He's not acting in charge. Even when God says, you know what? I'll make a people out of you, Moses, instead of them. Moses says, no, 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 no. Your character is greater than that. And to see God relent, as it says, is not showing us necessarily that God changes his mind, but that God has a mediator that he allows in that position to evoke the character that he is, not so much for Moses' sake, but I mean, for God's sake, but for Moses' sake. You see Moses begin to shape and conform like him. In fact, this instance is, being, is brought up in Deuteronomy, another passage here, in Psalm 90 that describes the account of this, and it describes Moses in this mediator position. And it gives us a window into who Jesus really is. You know, in the Gospels, it says that, that, that there are a number of people, it happens over and over, that they go, this is the one Moses wrote about. The Gospels begin to proclaim this. Here's the one that Moses wrote about. And they're talking about Jesus. That there's an element, there's a characteristic. They see Jesus and they say, this is the one Moses began to write about. That the true mediator, that this is a picture of what does Jesus really do in that position of mediating for us? What does it mean that he is God and yet puts on flesh to come in that position in order to take wrath and also in order for us to be loved? And it really is this character of first jealousy. In, ver, in chapter 33, it talks about God's jealousy. He's a jealous God. And I think when we first read something like that, or we hear that character, you know, that God, his anger, we see that. We typically think of it in all negative positions of envy and jealousy. 
which it can be, and it has, is, has its connotations in the Bible. Like for us, it's hard because it's so curved inward. Usually when we're jealous about something, it's more about us and our insecurities. It's about our self-importance. It's us being jealous. Oh God, why don't they think of me more? Why don't, why don't you know, those kind of positions. But this is actually one that it refers to a single-minded pursuit for the other's good. That's actually what godly jealousy is. This is what's different about it. And I was trying to think, what, what would really create and craft this uh, image for us? And I was thinking recently, especially with all the, all the you know, string in our family of birthdays, Christmas birthdays, and all these uh, other gift-giving times of when I see my, my boys and very natural of them when gifts are given, that's, there's an opening of a gift. It's like, what, what, where's the next gift? What's the next one? They rip, they're great gift openers. They're amazing. Awesome. Okay, next. And they look for the next gift. And often we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. Not just look at what you have, but also what about the one that just gave it to you? What about your mom? What about your dad? What about your grandparents? Where'd the gift come from? And even in a positive way, we can look at that and say, well, you know, Where's the next gift? They're, they're looking for the next, the gift, the focus gets put on the gift rather than the gift giver, rather than the one himself. And what God is, he's zealous for them to stop looking at what they're trying to craft or make of him in his anger and for them to know their greatest love. The gift can't love my kids back. And when I opened my Father's Day gift, <clears throat> which was a, a a wonderful new like Yeti cooler. I've been really wanting one of those. And when I opened it up, this is what was amazing. Inside, I opened it, it was brand new. Open it up, f- pull out all the stuff. And at the bottom I go, oh, there's one of those little like, you know, key ring things, something like left in there. I reach down and I pull it up and, oh no, it, it's someone's wedding ring at the bottom of my Yeti. Like apparently it was so strong it like ripped it off this person's finger. So I immediately went to a pawn shop. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but but the person I was sitting there going, man, is this person like? Did they? Were they wondering? They leave wherever store and go. Okay, where is my ring? You know, like in the middle of a sports store. Or, you know, that kind of thing in there. What does that represent? What is the what is the thing showing? It's a sign and seal. It's not the actual marriage, but this jealousy that the Lord is showing is that he is jealous for his spouse, that he loves them with a jealousy that is a right jealousy. Not, God doesn't need anything from them. He isn't intimidated by the golden calf. He's not intimidated by even them. He doesn't need them to love him out of his own self-importance. He wants to love them so that they know how loved they are because the calf can't love them back. And all the festivals they throw and all the things that they do don't show them that. They can't do it. All the gifts we receive, all the things we get, the gift can't love us. It's only the giver that the gift points back to. His jealousy, and in fact, actually the Hebrew for jealous is also zealous, that he's zealous for you. His anger burns hot because nothing that you and I can turn to 
it all breaks our vows to him. That's why he, Moses not only appeals to his, his, uh, his character, but his word. And he finishes by saying this in this passage, verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which is actually another name for Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as stars of the heaven. And all the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing his people. Why does Moses appeal to this? It's an ancient phrase. So ancient, it's been used over years and years and years and years and years and years and would be even passed down into the New Testament because that phrase is almost like quoting wedding vows. As Moses recites, he said, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your word stands, your wedding vow goes far beyond my life, even the life of Jacob, even the life of of, of, of all those that will come after. Because your word stands true. His promises are that. And no matter what we see and what we, we find, all the tension we feel, we need to be reminded that his faithfulness to us is more faithful than anything we can craft, any image we can look to, anything we can latch onto in this life. His faithfulness is sure. So much so that what does God do for us? He embodies his relationship with us. In who? Jesus. See, the mediator that Jesus is, is the mediator of embodying the firstborn, as it says in Colossians, Paul writes about this later in the New Testament, the image of God himself, the image that we are to be made into isn't something that we craft or put into, it's one that he is already. And you know what's incredible is that Jesus, even when he was with his disciples, says this. He says, it is better that I go because one is coming after me that is greater than me. And that's why we come to this table. This table shows us God's zealous love for us. No other image or thing we can create or craft or put into has the character like what we see at this table. Because Jesus shows he's not only just the priest, he's the sacrifice, he's the mediator that takes it. God's so zealous that he provides for us his own body and blood. He embodies us so that he can die for every idol we try and worship. He embodies us so that he can take on every part of our sin that turns outward to look and to make our faith more sight than it is faith. So that we can come to this table and be reminded that we are his. And that what happens at this table isn't magic. This isn't like a, an idol we're to look at. You don't look to this, bo- this bread and, and juice as something that, that is to supplant your faith. It's actually to show that you eat it by faith. It's to remind you of where your faith is. It's just a morsel, an appetizer to remind you that we are in the wilderness and our hearts are prone to wander. What's the famous song we always sing with Come Thou Fount? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it with thy courts above. How do, how do we know that our hearts are sealed? Because we have a mediator 
in Jesus, who embodies all the character that we long for, all the character we push against so that we are kept with the promises. No matter whether we see them on or not, his promises never leave us. They are with us. You're handling gospel. It's that apparent to our senses when we come to this table. We get to see the bread and partake of it. We get to see the juice or wine that represent the blood of Christ and partake of that so we can smell it, taste it, touch it, see it in a way we, we don't do the rest of the week, really. And so I urge you to view this table not as something that is just a habit that we have, but as something that is a beautiful, meaningful, and necessary encounter with God each week. As we come to this table... We understand several things. This table has been declared in Scripture as God's table for his people, okay? He doesn't say this is a Presbyterian table or a Baptist table or Methodist or whatever. This is a table for God's people, those who believe in him, those who have trusted him for eternal life and for their salvation. And so we, I open this table for you right now, and I say to you, this is not... Uh, a music city, a music row table. This is God's table. And this is not any particular denominational table. This is a table for God's people. If for some reason you have not yet come to a complete conclusion on your relationship with God or on your, on how you stand there, I would urge you to not come to this table or to not partake of the elements and to consider during the time when the rest of us are taking them uh, what it is you have questions about or what it is you'd like to ask. And if there's any of you out there like that and you want to ask questions, find me. Find many of these people that you see up here in front of you and ask them a question. Find David Siambor who did the, uh, who did the, uh, there he is back there, that did the, uh, all the stuff prior to, 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 the, to the sermon. Ask David. He'll give you a good response. And so we welcome you to this table in the name of Jesus Christ. We're doing communion now in a way that's a little bit different from the way we like to do it. We often like to do it um, by having people come forward and so forth and so on. Those of you who've been here we're here when the pandemic, before the pandemic started, we'll remember how we did it. And hopefully someday we'll get back to that, where we come forward and partake of this together. But right now we're going to be taking, uh, we're going to be taking it in our seats where we are. You'll find in your bulletin a responsive reading. It's a series of questions and you give the answers. Let's do that together right now. And I pray that you will listen to and connect with these responses as we go through them.